Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and today is episode 241 for October 11th, 2021. And we have quite the interview for you today. I've managed to bring together two of my all-time favorite people in the realm of privacy, Michelle Dennity and Melanie Ensign. Between the two of them, they have got decades of experience working with and within many really big-time tech companies. Some names that you'll definitely have heard of before. Now, before we start, there's been a ton of news. Uh, I will try to get to all of that next week. The Facebook papers, the, the stuff that was published by the Wall Street Journal, the testimony before Congress of the whistleblower, and of course, the huge Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram outage, which, because those are all owned by Facebook, we'll talk about what actually happened there that took them completely offline for about six hours on uh, a week ago Monday. And so much more. I, there's there's, there's going to be a lot to cover next week. A couple other news items. Uh, I just passed my one-year anniversary of retirement. October 5th last year was when my last day at Cisco. And, man, I got to say, I've really, really been enjoying it. And, and I, I love that it's allowed me to focus, honestly, more on the podcast and the other things I'm doing, too. So it's, it's been great all around. And also, this is week two of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month here in the United States. And week two's theme is Fight the Fish. We've talked about fishing many times on the show, and I will have some more tips for you for National Cybersecurity Awareness Month in next week's news show. So this was a really long interview. I've actually, I probably got two hours worth of material out of this, and I so I've edited it down to just over an hour and tried to get the main parts of it. I did save some really uh, good juicy content, though, for the patrons. If you want to get the full interview, just head on over to patreon.com, look for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, and become a patron, and you will get access to the private podcast where I put all the bonus content. And this is definitely the biggest content, the biggest bonus content I have ever captured for an interview. So there's lots of great stuff there. I was I hated cutting anything out of this, but I'm trying to keep the podcast to about an hour a week. So I, I had to pull out some of the stuff. Now, in this interview, there's a, a few phrases and references thrown around I just want to talk about really quick. Uh, one of them is Diffie-Hellman. That's a Diffie-Hellman exchange. This is a cryptographic thing that happens actually all the time behind the scenes that you don't see when you're connecting to things over the internet with HTTPS. It's very high-tech, but it's very cool. Uh, if you're ever going to get into cryptography, look it up on uh, Wikipedia. But that is what that's referring to. It's a, it's a technological term. It's a method for uh, exchanging private key information to set up an encrypted connection. Michelle also mentions quantum computing. We've mentioned this on the show before, but just to remind you, this is a new technology that's still really in its infancy, but kind of allows computers to do multiple things at once and therefore allows it to do very certain mathematical operations very quickly. And one of the things that it potentially could do is make it a lot easier to brute force break encryption. So we've got technologists out there that are working on, you know, encryption that will be resistant to that. So never fear. I think we'll be okay there. But that's what she's referring to uh, when she talks about quantum. She also mentions blockchain and distributed ledger. These are other technologies that are behind cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Again, it's just some technological things. Blockchain is really an interesting concept. Nothing else comes out of Bitcoin except for the concept of blockchain. I mean, that that's really interesting. But it's quite the buzzword, and you'll find a lot of people in the tech world throw that around a little too easily as a solution to a lot of problems, when in reality, it, it is a great solution for a very limited set of problems. But it's a little beyond the scope of this and too much to explain here. Maybe at some point I'll try to do a little explainer, a little primer on uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and how blockchain works, but not today. But that is what she's referring to. 
And finally, a couple other acronyms. She talks about RFID, radio frequency identification. These are little little chips, size of a grain of rice or smaller, that are often embedded in things like modern passports and some other devices that uh, that when excited by electromagnetic radiation can emit uh, an identifier. So it's kind of a fancy way of saying it's kind of a tracking device, but it's not just for like spying on people. You know, they're, they talked about putting them in package wrapping so that you could just walk out of a store and, you know, like a barcode that doesn't need to be scanned with light. Like you just walk through the center and it scans everything in your cart and, and adds it up and charges your cart as you walk out the door. They're used for all sorts of things, but that's what an RFID is. And then she talks about PII or personally identifiable information. That's sort of the fancy industry term to refer to your private data, information that can be linked back to an individual. A couple other warnings. Uh, there is some background noise that's happened in this. I apologize for that. doesn't really interfere with the interview, but uh, they, are, they are there and I apologize. And just, you know, trigger warning. This is one of the cases where there is going to be a little bit of swearing in this. Not too awfully bad, but if that's something that bothers you, just FYI, there's going to be a couple swear words dropped in this interview. So fair warning. All right, we got a lot to get to. Let's get to this amazing interview with Melanie Ensign and Michelle Dennity. Melanie Ensign is the CEO of Discernible, helping cybersecurity and privacy teams better communicate with business leaders and consumers. She's also part of the DEF CON leadership team. Welcome, Melanie. Thanks, Gary. I'm so happy to be here. And Michelle Dennity was the first CPO for many global IT infrastructure companies, including Oracle, McAfee, Intel, and Cisco. Michelle is now a partner at Pravadis.online and CEO at a privacy engineering startup in stealth mode. She is the co-author of the Privacy Engineers Manifesto and the Privacy Engineers Companion. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me. So in uh, full disclosure, I know both of you from various uh, previous things, uh, Melanie name should be familiar because she was the one that hooked me up with Jeff Moss. Thank you so much for that, for that interview. Uh, and Michelle, I came this close to working for you at Cisco and then that all fell apart. Oh, we and then, tried. And then you yes. left. So, uh, so, so we have some history here. So just full disclosure, but my audience doesn't know you guys. So before we get into the questions real quick, why don't you, uh, you've got both very colorful backgrounds. Why don't you start off by telling us, you know, how you came to be a warrior now and, uh, you know, what you're currently doing in the privacy space. Uh, Melanie, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, and I'll, I'll make it quick because Michelle's uh, story is just immensely more interesting than mine. But I started in this space about 15 years ago. I actually started working with the chief security office at AT&T running security communications for, for their team. Um, it was interesting. Back then, it was a time when there was a lot of their business security solutions, right? So this security solutions that they're selling to other businesses um, was led by the chief security officer. So the internal security team that was protecting AT&T's network was the same organization that was also selling those capabilities mm. to other businesses. And so it was a really interesting time to work with them. It's really where I cut my teeth in cybersecurity. Uh, my background is I actually went to college for marine biology the first mm. time and emerged with a master's degree in communications. And so I do not have a technical background, but I spent six years working with that security team at AT&T and very grateful for everything they taught me and their willingness to kind of coach me through um, something totally new. And then I started um, working on security communications at Facebook. Most recently, I led security, privacy, and engineering communications at Uber. 
And mm. about 18 months ago, we started Discernible because uh, we recognized that there was a need for other companies and other organizations to be able to communicate these very nuanced and technical security and privacy topics to their various stakeholders, whether it's their business leaders, right? Like how do you explain to a CEO or to the board of directors, all mm-hmm. of the different security and privacy risks that exist, but then also for consumers, that's an area where a lot of businesses fall short is how do you explain to your customers yeah. um, or even to regulators and lawmakers how all of these things work, right? And I am a huge advocate for personal protection and consumer rights. And we're not going to get good laws that adequately protect people unless we can communicate about these issues effectively and honestly. Um, and so yep. that's what we're doing at Discernable. And that that brings me here. And sometime along the way, uh, I got scooped up by, by DEF CON. And have really enjoyed my time with the hacker community as well. Awesome. All right, Michelle, how about your story? Well, I mean, I think it is less colorful, uh, but it's long. <laughs> so I, I actually, similar to, to Melanie, my, my undergraduate work, I have a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology, uh, which actually has come full circle. It I'll is bet, yeah. right? Everything's about people. And specifically in my case, psychopharmacology and the relationship of self-efficacy or or the will to do something and the mechanical and systems changes that actually happen in the human body. So that was part of my uh, research thesis as an undergraduate. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go get a PhD because that's what you you do with a degree in psych if you want to be employed. So I actually went down to uh, plot my course and and sat down and met a professor who I'll never forget and he'll never remember who said, you young lady are not a scientist that needs to be in a lab. You're an advocate. And I thought, no, I am a geeky misanthrope. I like to be alone. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But as it turns out, he said, go away and do something in advocacy for a year. And if you're still interested, you can join the program. And that was well over 30 years ago, probably 35 years ago. So I went to law school instead and and continued uh, advocating for inventors' rights at the time. I started life as a litigator in a patent law firm. And all of that deep, dark history last century is relevant because when I encountered privacy and a gentleman named Jonathan Fox, who was at the time editor-in-chief of Sun.com, Sun Microsystems, a little firm you might remember out here in the Valley, we had a CEO who said, you have zero privacy, get over it. And he was talking yeah. about the ability of, of Jira, which was not the Atlassian tool. It was actually a Java offshoot that allowed you to wirelessly print things. And so somebody in the press corps said, what about privacy? And he made his snarky reply. And so yeah. long- I've quoted that with Scott McNeely, right? It was McNeely. And he still believes it, bless his little heart. <laughs> He's a good guy, actually. He's got his own funky- you know, way of being part of that like late 90s superstar head of, you know, on every magazine cover uh, CEO type persona. But what he's really getting at is it, it is pertinent to where we are today, which is the the sort of the what I call the death of the surveillance society and, and economy and the rise of the consent economy, where the old fashioned views in the late 90s, early aughts was just collect everything and what could possibly go wrong, and everything's going to be cool, 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 versus are we going to have purpose-driven, ethics-driven, designed choices that are actually good outcomes for everyone involved, businesses, consumers, et cetera. 
So you can sort of see the arc of my career in these various places. Um, I'd like to get I, got, I like to get in when things are early and dirty. So I've been the first CPO at a lot of places. I've been a CPO in places that looked like from the outside that they were nice and buttoned up. And on the inside, there were not a lot of systems in place. And so it's sort of a, it's been an art of storytelling and persuasion and really coming up with powerful why and hows while the economic engine caught up to the fact that hoarding data may not be the best outcome. So that's sort of my my point of view here. I, I look at privacy as a form of intellectual property, not the same as a trademark, not the same as a copyright, not the same as a patent, and certainly not the same as real estate in, in the tangible place, but it's an ephemeral right that is bound by a bundle of rights and obligations. And so that's how I start to break apart the privacy, the data protection uh, debate and environment. And along the way, I was scooped up by Mel and uh, we're gonna work together again on one of my new ventures. So I'm super excited. Today, I'm, I'm building a software company to be pointed at the privacy engineering community. And I, I as you said in the intro, I'm also doing strategy consulting work at Pravatis.online uh, to help people look at this as a strategic issue. That is a pretty amazing, uh, pretty amazing route to getting where you're at. That's a, that's a long and storied journey. <laughs> and I'm yes, sure you've got a lot of stories. Lot of stories. <laughs> so this is going to sound maybe cheesy, but you guys in particular, I know because you've been in several situations where you must have done this, have got to come up with some sort of a pithy definition for privacy, like capital P privacy. Like, so when people say, you know, what do you mean by that? Or how do you define that? And I, I know that obviously you've got a lot of experience explaining this to C-suite types and, and, and those and maybe through interviews and panels. But what is your go-to definition of privacy? When, like for, for non-technical people, for, for my audience, when somebody off the street, somebody you don't know at a cocktail party who may not be doing what you're doing, when they say, why is, what is privacy? What, what, does, that, what, what does that really mean? So what, what is your, what, what's your go-to definition for that? I'm really boring. So I'll go first and then Mel can add color. I actually wrote down my definition in the Privacy Engineers Manifesto and I, and I stand by it. I view privacy functionally as the authorized processing of PII or personal data according to moral, ethical, legal, and sustainable principles. And, and that's a package and a bundle of things. And I don't mean opt-in and opt-out when I say authorized. Mm. I mean, contextual processing, hoarding data is processing data, sharing data is processing, encrypting and excluding and hiding data is processing. So anything that happens to data, and then you have to kind of go through that, that fence, which is morality. And morality, I view anyway, as largely universal with some outstanding sigmas, right? It's the really bad crap, right? That you don't want to do. Ethics, I, I clumsily design as sort of your brand. Um, what, what, who are you and who are you in the world and who do you want to be in the world as, as far as, you know, a, a reliable source, a trusted source, et cetera. And then legal comes third for me. Mm. And, and is it legal should not be the origin of what are we allowed to do? Let's go all the way up to the toes on the line of legality right. and then sustainability. I include in what are you capable of honoring um, mm. on behalf of your customers and your employees, as well as what is sustainable financially. All right, Melly, what about you? What's your definition of privacy? 
So I actually agree with Chris Avelis, whose book I know that you've recommended to your listeners in the past. I view privacy as power. And the reason I say that is because throughout my career, the headwind that I constantly run up against when trying to counsel business leaders and product developers and software engineers how to think about privacy and how to be more respectful of the people whose data they're using, that headwind is always a fear of losing power. Mm. They are afraid that the more respectful they are to consumer privacy, the less powerful they will be either in their analytics capabilities, their competitiveness. Mm -hmm. And so I look very much, you know, through that lens of, is the person whose data you're using, are they actually in the driver's seat here, right? When we look at things like dark patterns and other types of manipulation techniques to try to coerce people into making certain types of decisions about their data, you're robbing them of the power to truly make informed decisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't want to, to steal Michelle's thunder here. So I'm just going to preview this because I suspect it, it's coming later, but she talks a lot about the consent economy, right. As you know, the, the next evolution that we're going to after going through the, the horrors of the surveillance economy yeah. and you consent is not something you can coerce from people. That is, that's actually antithesis to consent, right? And so right now in the privacy world, there is too much focus on, oh, you accepted these terms or you clicked to this box or you said, okay, like if the company and the organization really cared about respecting you and sharing those power, uh, their power with you, the process and the experience would look very, very different. And so, you know, especially when we're talking about businesses or governments, even compared to individuals who has the power matters and you cannot exercise your rights when you are stripped of your power. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I still love that book. <laughs> she did such a great job. And I really still recommend that to anybody who has not read that book yet. You absolutely read Privacy is Power by Carissa Villiz. And um, I've reached out to her. I actually talked to her an email a couple of times, but she's slammed. I mean, she, she's got a popular book there and she is in high demand. Uh, okay. So a lot has happened in the last five or 10 years with regards to privacy. There's been, you know, Cambridge Analytica. There was the Equifax breach, the Snowden revelations. In your experience in dealing with people and companies, do you think that that has actually caused people to change or think or act differently? What What is, are we coming around? Have we turned any corners? Has there been any tipping points, do you think, with privacy? So I have, I had one thought actually about the specific examples in the question, mm. um, because I think they did different things. Mm-hmm. Yep. I wish I could tell you the Snowden revelations had a profound impact on consumer sentiment and awareness and drive. It did not. I think in a lot of ways, it just drove a lot of bad behavior further into the darkness. And we're still trying to dig out of that to shine a light on some of those abusive behaviors. Equifax, I think, was too distant for most consumers. Like most people don't actually know what data Equifax has about them and how it's used. And so it, it just but yeah. feels it's too <laughs> but it's just too far removed. Yeah, yeah. Right. Sure. Because you don't see the immediate effects of it unless right. you are one of the unlucky ones that actually becomes a victim of identity theft because of one of these breaches. Right, right, right. 
I think Cambridge Analytica, however, touched consumers in a different way. And I think that that was far more impactful, even though it truly wasn't the same thing as actually having all of your personal data exposed. But people know what they post on Facebook. And the thought that somebody you did not want to share something with it does get shared with that. I think it just hit people in a more personal, visceral way because they're just more aware of not necessarily all of the data that Facebook knows about them, right? Like right. most consumers still don't know how much they have and how right. much they know, but I know what I post all the time. Mm-hmm. And I know what I say to my friends and family. And just the thought that somebody else could have access to anything that I have said on Facebook against my wishes that touches people in a more real way than some of these truthfully, like more severe and scary security incidents, right. In terms of actually having your data being stolen and very personal data, right. Cambridge Analytica didn't expose anybody's social security numbers, for example, but because it's so personal, it feels more violating. And I think the more we have those types of experiences as a society, consumers are waking up and, you know, just kind of, there are so many companies that talk about trust that clearly don't know what it means. Putting trust on your website doesn't create trust. Um, Creating a team dedicated to trust does not create trust. How you treat people every single day is what determines whether or not you are trustworthy. And I think that's where we're starting to see more consumer demand. I don't know that it's always articulated in this way, but the fact that I think for a long time, you know, these companies and and even our governments, Michelle knows I never forget about public sector because they do some scary shit with our data too and pretend like it's just a Facebook problem. Like, no, no, your local municipality has some pretty scary stuff going on. But the more that we are able to think about, you know, why it's not just that I expect you to be a terrible company. There are, you know, there are companies we expect to be terrible. And I think we finally hit a tipping point where we're like, why should we let them be terrible? Right. There's all kinds of businesses that we do not allow to exist. Uh, And I'll focus Mm, particularly on the United States. Like, human trafficking is illegal, right? right. You know, illicit drugs, illegal. Like we have banned certain types of businesses from existing within our society, in our country. And I think we're starting to see consumers thinking more about what other types of business models are really harmful for us and that we should not allow to exist just because they've existed for a while. Oh, and real quick, uh, and Michelle, I definitely, definitely want to get your answer too. But the, real, the other thing about the Cambridge Analytica thing for me was, and if you haven't watched The Social Dilemma, there's another one I'll drop for you. Check that one out. Uh, is that it was a real betrayal. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't just that they were collecting that information; they were using that information against us. I mean, or the, somebody else was able to, maybe someone else in this case, but they were able to take that information and use it against us, uh, and and manipulate us. But one of the things that I think is interesting is, you know, you mentioned Cambridge Analytica as like a betrayal, right? Because they were you know, working against individuals Mm -hmm. using that data, right? That's not too far-fetched from the way that some advertisers also use our data in the sense Mm. that they are trying to manipulate or coerce a certain (sighs) behavior. And so part of thing that I'm always thinking about is why do we have to let advertising the work work the way that it does? 
Right. You know, I'm, I am not suggesting that we remove advertising right, from right. our yeah. life altogether. There are sometimes it is very helpful. Oh, sure. Yeah. But it is, it's not a highly regulated industry right now. There are some regulations, but it's not highly regulated. You know, our telephone companies are regulated more than advertisers right now. And that includes the fact that like the advertising that the telephone companies do is highly not regulated. Um, yeah. And so the, the whole point is that like when you're manipulating somebody, does it matter if it's for a political campaign versus getting them to spend money on your product? It's still right. a sign of disrespect. Right. There's yeah. Where's that line on the continuum between really, really clever marketing and or effective marketing and dark patterns and, and manipulation that that's yeah. All right, Michelle. So what do you think? What, what do you think about those incidents? Or maybe there were other tipping point incidences that have happened that you could point to. And what do you think of has there have we reached any sort of a tipping point in the in society when we think about privacy? Yeah, I, I think um, I'll agree with Mal, the Snowden, and I won't call them revelations because they were not revelations. We, we I mean, Mel was at AT&T during a lot of controversial times. Um, we, we talked about at Black Hat over and over and over and over again about the level of governmental interference and surveillance. So there wasn't a single thing uh, revealed to anyone. However, you know, of course, he was like the the fantastic example of some some guy on on the run, right? Mm. So, so you know, I think that was the impact of that was economic harm for a lot of businesses for a long period of time. But exactly as Mel said, it it made the dark go darker. It made the surveillance get more in depth and more secretive. So it didn't have the effect that I think that he potentially wanted at the time. So, but but at the same time, uh, I got to give credit where credit is due. It did bring the dialogue into USA Today and off of TechCrunch. <laughs> you know, right. so right. I think that's you know that that is good, and I think the conversation needs to be had. Well, okay. So, and you, you've alluded to this already, so I'm pretty sure I know where you're going to come down on this, but obviously you've, you've both spent a lot of time consulting with companies and, and driving their privacy policies and the way they approach things and their messaging around privacy. So setting aside for now, Google and Facebook and, and companies whose whole business model is based on collecting data for, for other companies that maybe have collect data because it's, it is incidental to what they're doing. Where do you think they are recently? I, I, do you still think that the vast majority of companies today are looking at this strictly from legal and, and regulatory compliance? Are companies finally getting it? Are, are companies coming around to the notion that privacy is important for as a human right, as an end user thing, as a, if nothing else, as a marketing thing that, that they want to be able to tout? Or do they still look at this? Well, tell me what the laws are. I'll deal with that and then go away. Well, I'll, I'll start first because I'm probably going to be the most brief on this one. If, if people are seeking out myself, either through Provatus or through my stealthy privacy engineering work, it's a very biased view. If you're seeking me out, either you want air cover, and I have been hired as air cover in the past unwittingly because I tell them up front who I am, and I'm not an air coverage kind of gal. I like to get in and make things real. Mm -hmm. If you're hiring me, you're probably interested in economic efficacy, in human rights, and bringing back digital dignity. So I'm very skewed in that way. That said, I am not unaware that my clientele is in the vast minority. Mm. And here's the good news. Because the folks who are doing privacy engineering today 
and they're thinking about their digital dignity efforts and they're thinking about authorized over time types of transactions having to do with data, that means that there is a massive market that's being created. Because the other part I do know is having seen the insides of literally over 10,000 companies over the years. And I have set up over 30 privacy empires within companies and governments over the years and covering the globe. There's a lot of data hoarding going on. And suddenly our storage lockers are full, expensive, and becoming worthless because there are rats covering our supposed unicorn fuel. And so I do think that on the horizon, whether they like it or not, everyone is discovering that they are a digital entity and they are slowly coming aboard saying, I cannot secure my way out of this. I can't tech my way out of this. I can't lawyer my way out of this with disclaimers. At some point, you have to roll up your sleeves and sort of Marie Kondo yourself. And what data specs do I? And for whom? Ellen, how about you? Yeah, Michelle, actually, uh, this is a great segue because she ended where I was going to start, which is that I feel like at least most companies that I encounter, it's not that they haven't bought into privacy as being important or something that they want to do. It's that it's maybe chapter three or four in a very long journey about what the hell do we do with all of this data and do we really need it all? Yes. And so, you know, I will get, I mean, similar to Michelle, you know, when clients come to me, it it is a a biased sample size um, because folks are coming to me once they realize that, (laughs) you know, they, they need some help. And I get a lot of the companies that are interested in, we need to have a trustworthy thing to say, right? It, more from like a reputation or perception perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a really interesting position to be in because what I t- end up telling them is there has to be substance behind what you're saying. We're not just going to say, trust us. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have to demonstrate what you are doing that makes you trustworthy. And that's when we can bring in folks like Michelle to be like, oh, you don't have a privacy program? Well, then you definitely should not be putting these words on your website. It's not, it's not true <laughs> yet, you know? And so we, we work to actually like build those systems within the company so that they have something to talk about. Mm-hmm. Because at least the folks that are coming to me, they do care about it and they want to be better but they just don't realize, like I said, that it's, it's not the first step out of the gate because, you know, if we look at, I I look at data um, more kind of like a hazardous material, Mm. right? It doesn't mean it doesn't have value. doesn't mean that it can't serve society for a very positive thing, but you know, things like oil refineries, there are rules around what you can do with the oil and how Mm -hmm. it can be processed and how you can, like how how you treat it and how it can be processed and what you do with the waste, right? And we don't think about data in necessarily the same way just yet, but I think we are moving in that direction that, you know, data can be incredibly useful in our daily lives. Even the companies that are using our personal data, by and large, want to use that in order to provide something that we want. 
right? But there could be multiple ways of getting to that point. And whether or not they're doing it in the safest way possible is where, you know, regulations and privacy experts and engineers can come in and say, you know, borrowing some concepts from, you know, the profession of safety engineering, which deals Mm. with hazardous waste. Mm. How do we do this in, in a proper way? How do we do this in a safe way so that the processing of the data does not lead to more harm for the consumer? And so I think there is a maturing going on within not just companies and their use of data, but even within the privacy profession. The privacy profession, despite Michelle's decades and decades of experience, is relatively young. Michelle was a unicorn for a very, very long time. There just wasn't, you know, it's lonely. I'd rather be a horse than a unicorn. (laughs) And so we, we are, we are just now starting to see companies build out entire organizations of privacy engineers, right? Engineers that are building tools and technologies to respect and protect privacy. And so we're very early on in what I think is a very positive trend. Now, there's still lots of forks in the road. This is not a guaranteed you know, good outcome for everybody. Uh, and so we still need to be diligent in all the decisions we make along the way. But I am starting to see more companies thinking about it, not necessarily as privacy is a human right, even if that's what their employees believe. That may not be how the corporation thinks about it. The corporation is thinking about data as an asset and the fact that it is not governed or managed well. And quite frankly, in order to extract all the value that they could get from that data, they've got to get their governance ducks in a row, particularly in jurisdictions like Europe, where you have GDPR, Mm -hmm. you have to have a really strong governing strategy and process before you can even process some of that data, depending on what you're using it for and what the specific data is. And so I, I do see positive trends in that direction of whether they're doing it because privacy is truly their number one concern. We're getting some positive byproduct for privacy because companies are realizing, like Michelle said, all this data they have is costly to store. It can be costly to process. And truthfully, I think um, there was a, a report from Gartner not too long ago that said, you know, up to, you know, 75% of the data that companies have, it has no value. (laughs) So like, we've just been hoarding data because, you know, we were hoping that one day it would be useful. And what we're finding is that hoarding data is actually a huge liability, not just from a legal perspective or security perspective, but also from a reputation perspective. How much of this data do the companies even know that they're collecting? I mean, and, and it all has a half-life. It, like you said, it's not just an asset, it's a liability. And this data gets stale. And when it gets stale, it gets worse. So from a maturity perspective, I guess, technologically, are companies even aware of, of all, how much data they're, they're collecting? And could they even determine that if they wanted to? I'll, I'll go backwards. Could they determine if they wanted to? Sure. And I think that there's sort of a crop of what we're starting to call privacy tech companies. Um, Mel and I both sit as advisors on the rise of privacy technology or troped. I think there's a lot of companies trying to create inventories, maps, and other things. I think those things are great. However, kind of working up your question, do they want those things? And do they understand that having a map, having an inventory, having 
you know, be still my heart, a data dictionary, love a good data dictionary. Um, Cause I'm old school like that. How would they leverage it to understand how data becomes an asset and, you know, it's the accounting definition of a liability is an uncurated or ungoverned asset. So if you have a warehouse full of pencils, that's great. If you're selling pencils and you know where the warehouse is and you've got to just, you know, just, and, and now we're all on tablets or whatnot. If people have stopped buying pencils and you're no longer doing anything in that business, but you're still paying taxes on the land uh, but the warehouse has now got a crumbling roof and kids from the neighborhood are coming in and playing. And now you've got a fire hazard and potential, you know, attractive nuisance cases against you and on and on all for something that you're not using. I think that that is a very real risk, particularly with the speed of high up strategic thinking change. I mean, uh, look how many jobs I've had. Like it used to make my parents crazy. They thought, oh my God, you're supposed to have one job and that's your whole life right. and you stay there and that's not how we operate. Right. And the reality is, and I've said this actually to many of my, my mentor client, my mentee clients is, you know, cause they all come in, oh, how do I become a VP? I, my first question to all of them is, do you want to be? Because mm-hmm. you're not a functional individual worker at that point doing specialty work. You're playing Game of Thrones with budget and power. That's your only role as a vice president in any of these companies. And you will be killed at some point, either your soul or your actual body. You will start working for someone else. That said, that means that we've got turnover in people who are actually the governors or the instigators of data collection. So to your point, if I was to know where all of my data assets were and, and that things were collected, I would have to also know a lot about the history of that company, its brand, and the quote-unquote special projects that went down over the years. Uh, because I guarantee you that there are uncurated stacks of data everywhere. My other part of the question going to the top of your question is, are they aware that they're collecting information? And, and I think if they is the calculus of all the activities and their supply chain, I would say it's amazing to me how many companies are paying every single social media company for feeds and spots in their, in their advertising networks, regardless of the controversy around these platforms or the harm that they may have self-attested to doing. Uh, you're, you're seeing even toy companies go on platforms that are supposed for 13 and over and are actively doing things to curate or not dispel active child harm, right? So I don't think that there's someone thinking about information strategy at the top of the pyramid of all these guys. Mm. I don't think that even the quote unquote trust officers are necessarily thinking about the curation and the importance of this type of asset, which is not oil in that it's not just a a chemical formula. It's a person. We're talking about people. And I also don't think that people are understanding really how weak the particular privacy enhancing tool of anonymization or pseudonymization is, how you can trace and push information or pull information from an actual singular human being, which is really the, where the definition of privacy 
uh, or personal, personally identifiable information is going. I, it's, a, it's an important thing to note that the definition of personal information in PII, there's, there's sort of an Atlantic Ocean crossover. I always assume PII is broader. The Europeans assume that personal data is broader. Um, I don't care who's right. I just like to put it out there that, you know, I, I, I think globally, but I am, you know, my, my, my butt lives here in, in the US of A. So I think of personally identifiable information in this broad way. So if you, po- if you pose it to executives and say, do you have a lot of digital information? I think they'll all say yes. Um, I think they'll all agree that they're in some throes of digital transformation, whatever that means. I think many, many, many of them, particularly people who should be involved in the privacy debate, will also tell you, oh, it's not personal. It's just, quote unquote, machine data, Mm. or it's just metadata. Mm. And I'm like, you are so adorable. (laughs) So would they say yes to your question? Yes. Would they understand really what that yes means? I think it's still early, early days. I don't think there is a single person at any company that knows where all the data is. No way. (laughs) Agreed. And it's, you know, I mean, so let's ask the same question and play sort of the thought game of, is there a single person who at any given time knows where all the money is? It should be the CFO. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's really not business unit by business unit, right? Or even like where all of your employees are, right? If, you know, the the fact that companies track when employees travel, um, particularly internationally, like for safety reasons, right? To make sure like, what if there's an earthquake in, in that country, we need to make sure that our employees are safe. And, uh, you know, or like even, you know, issuing guidance from the State Department about whether or not these are safe areas to travel to like, this is like, as Michelle is saying, like assets, like people and money are governed meticulously by companies and governments. And yet data is an asset that does not have a really solidified governance strategy or mandate. In fact, I will say that you know, the, the regulations that we have here in the United States, number one, mostly non-existent. Um, but number two, it, it's about very specific, tangible, visible things and does not actually, you know, even the California privacy law, which is the, the most kind of robust one that's actually enforceable right now. It's not about data governance. It's about do's and don'ts of opt-in, opt-out, data deletion, you know, there still has been no real conversation in the United States about, should you have this data to begin with? Should we even allow you to collect this, right? Again, I'll go back to my previous argument about, you know, this is not the first time that we as a country have decided that certain businesses are just harmful to society and they don't deserve to exist. Again, I, I think it's just that we're new to this journey. I think it's early days. I don't think of it in terms of like that we're destined for some dystopian future. I think this is just, you know, especially with technology, we're used to things moving so quickly that sometimes waiting for all of the ducks to get in a row from a policy technology and regulatory perspective, it just takes a long time. It is not for, you know, folks with short fuses. All right. So we've mentioned, we've, We've mentioned oil several times, and and, I, and so I want to get to the to this question, and that is, and I'm sure you guys probably cringe when I when you hear this, but a lot of people have been saying, and over the years that you know, data is the new oil, 
but to that point, some people have proposed that users should own their data. We should treat it as a like a good, like a, something to be directly, you know, accounted for, bartered, sold. There are people that have proposed that, you know, we actually have a third party hold our data and we license access to it and things like that. But how should we think about our personal data? Like, you know, what is what is the correct or maybe the most useful metaphor when you're when you're trying to think about what is data in the business world today? Quick, I, I just quick and then Mel, because I, I need to clear my name. Charlotte Thornby can back me up. I was in Europe, and I think it was circa 2002 or three. And I said to a group of data regulators that data is the new oil. And then I waited a beat and I said, except that it's not because <laughs> oil is dead dinosaurs. And we're talking about human beings. Data is currency in that it is time, context, geographically bound. So I started that whole stupidness and I regret it to this day. I did not know that. (laughs) They did not complete the quote. (laughs) Go ahead, Mel. Sorry. (laughs) So, So I have two thoughts about this particular analogy. On one sense, and I mentioned this earlier, I do think it's a helpful analogy. Sorry, Michelle, sometimes sometimes <laughs> things work okay. out. Okay, I, I um, like the way you do it about the <laughs> regulatory side. So yeah, I'm, I'm the, cool. the, yeah, the, it, And so I look at it from the perspective of if it's oil, and here's the thing is the people who call it the new oil like are talking about it in terms of like, it could make us tons of money. And they, yes. forget, they forget the fact that like, there are a lot of rules about oil, not just... <laughs> you know, like environmental rules, right? Because it's a pollutant, (laughs) but also there's a lot of rules about global trade. You know, saying that it's the new oil is not like saying you have a money tree in your backyard, right? Like we need to be really clear about that. That being said, um, so I'll go back to uh, what I mentioned earlier from Carissa's book is I really think thinking about privacy as power is really helpful for us as consumers because anytime the power dynamics are imbalanced and we do not have the ability as consumers to decide what happens with our data, there's a reason for that, right? So it's, I'm hesitant about the commoditization of data from an individual perspective, because truthfully, as individuals, our data isn't really that valuable. Um, Mm -hmm. Data is valuable when you have lots of it. Right. Information about what I had for breakfast today is not really nobody's going to buy that, but they will buy what everybody in my town had for breakfast. Mm. Right. And so I think that there is perhaps a gap in some of the the public discourse around commoditization and whether or not we should be like owners of our data Mm -hmm. uh, in that same way that like we could actually sell and barter it. But, you know, the other thing that I want to note and Michelle, I'm just going to tee this up for you and then you can you can dunk it is that nobody actually really wants to do this as consumers. I don't want to spend all day like bartering my data. That sounds terrible. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to live my life. Right. And so the, the fact that, you know, in order for consumers to be empowered, we would need to spend X number of hours every day clicking on boxes, <laughs> watching, you know, markets like that's that is not me having power. Right. That's just giving me the burden. Mm, And so I think as consumers, we really need to be putting the onus on companies and on our elected officials whose job it is to protect us, to pass laws and create 
businesses and products that respect us. When you respect somebody, you give them the opportunity to tell you how they feel, to tell you how they want things done, right? Think about the relationships you have in your personal life with friends and family, people you respect the most. You would not pull shit behind their back like this, right? Like we have, you know, it's why I get so uppity about the use of the word trust by some of these companies. Cause I'm like, you're either lying right now as you say that word, or you truly don't know what it means right. <laughs> because or both. You know, yeah, or, or both. Yeah. could be both. And so, you know, that's why when I think about privacy is power, when I feel hopeless, when I feel scared, when I'm frightened, when I'm overwhelmed, it is because I have lost some kind of power. Hmm. And in order for an organization, whether it be a company or government to earn my trust, they need to return that power so that I feel safe and in charge. Wow. Awesome answer. All right. Cue it up. Take it, Michelle. Oh, I love the, I love everything about that answer. And I will even like fall in love with the oil thing because of the regulatory <laughs> thing. It wasn't really what I said. I can't really add too much onto that fact, but I think the notion of respect and respectful behavior has really been denigrated over these last years. I think that what, what's happened in the US, what's happened in Germany, what's happening in Australia, on in China, on and on and on, has shown that there's, there's not as universal an idea of how we treat each other as individuals, how the state should treat us, how we treat each other. And for the people in power, and I think there's layers of people in power when it comes to data. Mm. The, the, you know, it's been shown that the majority probably even of CEOs today, some of them can be characterized as sociopaths <laughs> and it's hard. And, and, you know, to, in their somewhat defense, you have to be bound by the power dynamics outside of yourself as a CEO of a company. So you're bound by the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission here in the U.S. And what they're saying is grow exponentially and endlessly and infinitely. Right. That is a mathematical impossibility. Right. And do we want that? Right. Do we instead want to be judged by the quality and the service that we deliver so that the companies and, and the services will exist long past our lifetimes. If that's the thinking we want from our leadership, you can't just keep dipping from the CFO and the sales crew. And most of the CEOs are flamboyant extroverts mm -hmm. that have come from the sales team because they know how to make money. Right. So if that's your judgment, then don't be surprised at what you get. On the other hand, the, the probably the most powerful person on earth right now in this digital realm is the developer. Your code will defeat my policy every time. <laughs> All right. So we've, I've studiously avoided Google and Facebook to this point because they are, their whole business model is about collecting data. So, but let's, let's go there now. And, and the reason I want to bring them up in particular is, uh, you know, these guys make billions of dollars off our data. It's, it's all in return for quote unquote free services. So 
I know what you guys think, but do you believe that the users of these services, if they think about it at all, do they really believe that they're getting their money's worth? Or do they feel that this is an equitable exchange, a value exchange with these companies? I'm sort of hemming and hawing because I have, I'll give you the, the dumb lawyer answer. It depends. <laughs> and I'll say it depends. I think having what was effectively the Encyclopedia Britannica translated into all the various flavors, having that available for quote unquote free initially felt like you were able to get to the library faster and you could get quote unquote information. And I think that that felt like a fair exchange for looking at ads that were like, if anyone bought a magazine, you would inevitably see advertisements. And then there was some regulation around, could we have things about cigarettes or booze and how much of a like millimeter of a woman's areola can, can be exposed before it has to sit on a certain height of a shelf and be covered in brown paper, et cetera. So I think some of that stuff we expect. What I don't think that the typical person is even capable of understanding is not just the pull from you information, but the actual crafting. And I won't even say predicting because it's, it's fantasy. It's deciding which flock of people get what types of information building blocks or conclusions, which is even more dangerous. And so I think that that's the part that people really don't understand how organic and purposefully manipulative this kind of information is. They don't understand the biases and, and no one wants to be biased against a, a particular group. But even more hurtful is I think even to each of us, we've lost the ability to sort of walk into this fantasy library and learn things that we want to learn. Instead, it's like, okay, middle-aged white woman, come over here and learn about saggy cheeks. And here's where you're gonna feel bad about yourself for this and that and the other. So yeah, I think I think for some stuff, it's worth it to look at advertising. I don't think that it's a human right to have to look at advertising. I don't think anyone really is like, rah, rah, siskumba, I wish I had better personalized ads. In fact, I like when it's not because I'm distracted by the good ones. Melanie, what's your take? So I was thinking a lot about this, particularly in the sense that Google and Facebook have very different products. Yeah. And so I was actually thinking about this the other day, completely unrelated to this conversation, because I'm actually trying to get off Facebook. The reason why I haven't yet is because I live in a different country than most of my family. And mm. it breaks my heart to think about the fact that I wouldn't have that connection with my nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. I remember growing up, I had over 50 cousins. I did not have a close relationship with any one of them because we only saw each other once every two years. Yeah. There just was no way to mm -hmm. keep in touch with everybody. And these relationships are so important to me, you know, wh while I'm abroad. But I, I remember back when, God, it must have been when I was in college. So decades ago. And it, like my family actually had a website that my grandmother started. Yeah. Ironically, my oh, grandmother wow. was the most like tech savvy person in our oh, family. Wow. She was the first one to have a car phone, fax machine, home computer, everything. 
she's also the only one that I know who's actually met and married somebody that they, you know, from an online dating service. Hmm. Um, she, she was our technical go-getter. Oh, wow. And so I remember that my family had a website where we would post our updates, share photos, have a conversation, and it was private to just us. And for the small number of relationships that do mean that much to me, I would prefer to be able to go back to that. Mm. And so, you know, having these conversations with my family about, you know, is, is there a more private way that I can stay in touch with you so that I can get off this platform? And that to me is different uh, than, for example, like Google in terms of email provider, which is not something that was available previously in some other form. I realize there are other email providers now that aren't engaged in the same business practices, but that to me is like a service that Mm. I am willing to ascribe some value to. Mm. It's just different to me when it's like I had what existed before Facebook Hmm. Mm -hmm. and I liked it better. So to me, you know, to Michelle's point, it does depend and it's very personal. You know, my situation is different from, from other people's. And, you know, we've talked a lot already about power and control for consumers. The fact that we simply can't make these choices the way that we used to be able to, or even the fact that companies are intentionally making it harder for us to make certain choices and introducing friction. That's where I really start to, where my feathers get ruffled, right? Where it's like, there, there are people that are going to put their threshold differently than my own. We're all going to put our line in the sand in a different spot. Right. And the companies that truly respect us are the ones that allow us to control that scale. And I actually think once the companies embrace that, and I think that that is, is going to be a bigger push from the consumer, and I'll say a very informed consumer at first, and, and then more and more weight will follow. I think there are new business models based on higher quality interactions. And, you know, as Mel said, I mean, I primarily use Facebook as a scrapbook for myself. I have, you know, I talk about my daughters there. I am, you know, from my, including my prior marriage, I have, I think, 34 nieces and nephews at this point. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, we Irish, it's what we do. <laughs> it's important to me, even though I am divorced, I, I, I want to stay in my nieces and nephews. Sure, life. yeah. I was married to that guy for 20 years and dated him five, six years before that. So a lot of these kids were born, raised, and married while we were together. So I think having an exclusive family website would have been even more devastating than the family members that decided that marriage and and all of our relationship was based on a, a piece of paper, essentially. So uh, as Mel said, it's just an example, again, of of the texture. We all have such different types of chosen families and chosen businesses. And and I approach my social media very intentionally. I I have a a very noisy, weird Twitter (laughs) presence. I was only political for four years. (laughs) and Now I'm political no more. I'm back to Switzerland as much as I possibly Mm, can, except for true craziness. 
but I, I think it's a different persona. It's definitely a different persona than my LinkedIn persona. And that is also a different persona than my Facebook persona. And then there's stuff that I decide, and it's not sensitive, any more sensitive than what I share. There's stuff that no one knows, like, it, because that's just sort of a topic that I sort of keep to myself. And, and like right. I said, like some of it is, you know, it's like who I'm dating, like, right. Like, uh, there are a lot of people on LinkedIn They have no idea of like what kind of LGBTQ plus T straight cis whatever, right. because it just doesn't for, for my business, it doesn't matter. Um, and it doesn't come up much, but so I think that's a mealy mouth way of saying, if you are able to curate data as an asset and think about asset classes and think about the quality and the intensity of familiarity that you want to have in certain interactions. It, it naturally goes that we will have a duck, duck, go brave world, a brave new world, as they say, where you can browse for what you want to browse without being bombarded with yeah. stuff. And you can also have a, a very private place that's very specific to hold your photos. And maybe you can even curate and send them to places or have a video um, presentation of yourself if you want to virtually interview for jobs or put yourself out there in a dating context. So I think having that context, having that permission, having that minimization, having a time-bound curation, just as you've got McDonald's on one side and like Chez Panisse on the other, if we can be this creative with food, why can't we be this creative with data about the 8 billion souls that are rolling around the planet right now? So that brings a brings a perfectly segues into the next question I was going to ask you, and and this is what really bums me about out about the whole thing. So I'm a technologist, and I've watched sci-fi movies in the, in the past, and and I dream of the day where I can give out this data and actually have it function for me. There's so many cool things we could be doing with this data, and there there we give away a lot of intimate data today already. I mean, there's there's apps for dating, there's apps for dieting, there's apps for ovulating, there's that you know there, you know, there's we're, we're already doing it, even though it's really dangerous to be doing it now. But I want to live in a world where that is cool. I want to live in a world where that is possible and I can feel good about it and not worry about it. I want I want the relationships with me and these personal apps to be like my doctor or my lawyer, where I trust these guys implicitly. And in fact, they're legally bound to a sort of data fiduciary way to do things that represent my interests first. Are we ever going to be able to get there? Before I, before I even finish that question, one more example that I love to look at is, I mean, we see Minority Report in 1984. We have these pop culture references for the dystopia, but there's also the utopian ones too. There's there's Star Trek. In the old days of Star Trek, you know, when the captain sat down and did personal log, he didn't worry about anybody getting that log. He just talked to the computer and asked it questions and didn't worry about who might know because I guess it's assumed that no one would know except those that had to. In the movie Her, it's a weird movie. It's kind of quirky. It's off. It's this thing, but he has an intimate trust relationship with this AI that is never compromised, even though this AI, I don't want to spoil the movie, but as other relationships as well, there's, there's a boundary there. There's compartmentalization. And I would love to be able to get to the point where I can trust data to that point. Are we ever, is that possible? Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. So how do we get there? <laughs> so I, I will start and then Michelle can make it better. <laughs> so... <laughs> there is already technology that exists that companies could buy and deploy that would bind rules and governance via encryption 
to specific data objects. So one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that data is actually physical. It does have weight. It is a physical object. It is freakishly small, <laughs> but it does have physical properties. And you can bind rules to it using encryption. And so at the point that the data is created, if you attach the encryption and the rules to that data object at the time it is created, those rules stay with the data and govern who can see it, what it can be used for, whether it can be copied, where it can travel. And so that gives you a lot of control over that data throughout its entire life cycle. It is challenging to get companies to adopt these technologies mm -hmm. because it goes up against like agile software development philosophies because most developers don't think about security because they don't have to because it's not in the specs that they're given for the software that they're creating. Right. And so I think we're in, in early days of this kind of data governance capability. And I'm optimistic that as it continues to develop and mature, we'll have even more capabilities. But the fact that we can actually control what can be done with data technically, rather than simply relying on contracts or mm. you know regulations, regulations yeah. I, I think is very exciting and something that more companies should be looking into you know, in terms of if, if we're actually really going to give consumers control of data or their agents or, you know, whoever is managing the data on their behalf, once the data is copied and that data is copied when you save it, when you transport it, once it's copied, it could go anywhere and could be copied a gazillion more times. Right. Uh, so if you don't encrypt it at the point that the data is created, you don't have control over how many copies get created and abused. I'm trying to figure out a good way to attack this without spilling too many beans. So let's have this conversation <laughs> a year from now uh, when we can actually talk to our, some of our customers, because this is it's not only possible, but there's a piece of the building block that we are building right now. And the part that's no secret, if like, you know, hit up the Google engine about Michelle identity. What am I going to talk about? Oh my God, privacy engineering. <laughs> what do I always talk about? Privacy right. engineering. And, and why do I keep talking about it? Because Grace Hopper was right in 1965 that she said that one day information will be on the balance sheet because it's in most cases more valuable than the hardware. She said back then, having only Very given yeah. birth to the software industry. Um, that that processes it, and and at that time she was talking about you know Univac, I mean, huge, 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 multi million dollar secret enclaves with all sorts of physical secrecy and encryption was sort of a dream in the future. I mean it was it was around because you know when the when the Diffie Hellman standard was kind of put together into a patent, it was the compilation of a of a lot of different mathematical theories over time. So those things are kind of coming up at the same time. You know, there she's in 1964, information's more important than hardware. There's Diffie-Hellman in 65, I think uh, some of their seminal patents first came out um, talking about mathematically being able to obscure access to that data. And then I think going into the future to be like really hippy-dippy trippy about it is, you know, I, I know it's still a buzzword, but quantum is coming. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing for quantum is, and I think there will be 
inevitably there will be quantum resistant encryption too. So I don't think that encryption's dead. I, I, I love a good blockchain. I don't think it's particularly great for the environment right now, right. but I do think distributed ledger is interesting to me and, and, is, and plays a part in overall, and I won't even say corporate governance, I'll say life cycle governance. There should be, some of these rules should be pinned to a distributed ledger so that when you ping the, the requirement that is bound to the electron that says blah, blah, blah. It has certain properties and characteristics and allowances. I think once you get into quantum, I'm acting things out that will not be helpful at all to your podcast listeners, but I'm, imagine, imagine a, a sphere that looks a lot like a cell. So how do cells operate in your body? They have an interior working that has almost like an architecture like you would have on a silicon chip. There's, a, there's an engine, there's a waste factory, there's a recognition on the outside of what fits and what doesn't. There's all sorts of proteins. I mean, if there's one thing that came out of the pandemic, like we learned a lot about yeah, stem protein, right, right. Here, right? This is the reality. And, and in my deep, dark patent past, one of the collections of patents that we were defending was for the AIDS cocktail. And the reason that Glaxo Welcome won the patents that we were defending was something called chirality. So imagine your hands, and not everyone has them, but let's assume two hands. You have the same elements on both hands, right? Mm. Thumbs, yeah. fingers, right. but they're not the same, are they? They fit in a different handshake. We shake our hands in different ways. They fit. Mm. This is how proteins recognize each other on the outside of a cell. And this was the difference of the exact same chemical composition, but right-handed chirality. Mm. So think about encryption in the future where you have a huge stack of almost organic weight of presence on a quantum system. So rather than even going one by one in rows and columns, think about it as an organic group. Just like I recognize Carrie as Carrie, I don't have to peel off a cell, run over to my nearest DNA lab and recognize you as Carrie. I recognize like I happen to know you, so I know what your face looks like. I know what your voice looks like. I know that Mel, I've, I've actually met Mel in person before she ran off to be in Cenotes. Um, she's a smart girl. We recognize human beings as being human, even if we don't know them because of their factor. So I think we're going to have all sorts of quantum recognition that's going to be recognized through different types of distributed ledger and permissions that will work a lot more like an organic system. Hmm. And in that organic system, if you think about privacy engineering, going to this place where you're going to have to recognize and protect circumstance, group, timing, and not just element. Because if we simply say Carrie Parker, and we add rule upon rule upon rule, which is the first sort of engineering flow through I tried to do when we were like all worried about RFID tags, yeah. mm. It's sort of like a giant cotton candy floss. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then the blob either says, I can do nothing with you or I can do everything with you. Hmm. What we need is something that says, like, the, like your body right now has 95% of the cells that are making your body work right this second are not you. They're bacteria, they're food, they're oxygen, they're things that we share. So this is how an engineering system should be thought about. There's 
parts where I interact with Google, Facebook. There's parts where I go to the grocery store and interact with them. There's parts where I want things delivered to my home or healthcare. Mm -hmm. All of those have time, place, circumstance, allowable, permissioned processing. And when that happens, I'm not every day proving myself to be Michelle Dennity. Right. You're recognizing me as human and sometimes that's enough. You're recon- recognizing me as like hungry person sitting in chair and you can right. you know, give me a menu or you're recognizing me as coming in as patient and I'm acting in a role. Our computer systems are pretty darn capable now to take a crack at time, place, circumstance. And I think, I can't remember if Mel or Carrie said it uh, online or not, but I think the word of the day is fiduciary. Mm-hmm. What is your fiduciary you, response? You said it, Michelle. It was oh. you. <laughs> that sounded so smart. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but that's it for me. It's like fiduciary care. It goes beyond legal. It incorporates ethical. It incorporates moral. It's cultural. And it is always questioned for bias. Actually, I think we'd said that before we got on the call too. So the audience doesn't know that. But yes, you did say that earlier. All right, last question. And let's see if we can end this on a high note. What paint me a pretty picture? What is how do we how do we get to a better future with privacy? What is how do we give our audience hope? What do we tell them to do to help manifest a better privacy future? I think we build things. I think we do what we always have done. Uh, when we're faced with hard problems, you know, as much as the collective whining going on, somehow the world came up with a vaccine mm. in a year. You know, and it wasn't it wasn't a vaccine in a year because all of these science denier people, like having worked with those pharma companies earlier last century, that collective muscle was able to be flexed because there were scientists in place, because there were clean rooms to build, because there were syringes that are cheap And because we had been building vaccines for a really long time, we weren't even starting from scratch. Yes, we were not starting from, it's not new science. It's not new. I mean, so I don't want to get political with anyone, but the fact is we started to build in the forties and fifties. And because we did that then, we were able to get to a place where people can go online and say that it's the flu. The only reason they can say that out loud is because of science made it so that they could pretend that. If not, it would have been a, a cataclysmic, probably organic earth saving because there'd be less humans event. So I think just like that, I, that's kind of, that's going really dark, but I think <laughs> Just as depends we on who you ask. I mean, right. who you ask. There are a lot of people that are uh, that are not on my list that would have been in that population. So I'm glad <laughs> they're here. So um, it, it never again. It, it's never fair, right? It hits the people you don't want it to hit. However, I'm not that mean. Well, yes, I am. Anyway, the point is, if we start building now, if we start thinking about privacy engineering, I'll bring it back to my hometown again. Then we start thinking about what can I do as a data fiduciary in my daily life? What am I willing to do as a professional to advocate for this? What data is on my my balance sheet as an HR rep, as a marketing person, as a leader, as a manager, as a team member, as a church member, as somebody who goes to the Boy Scouts? Think about data as currency, as something very valuable and tangible. And if you are a communicator, communicate more. If you're a builder, build more. If you're a lawyer, think globally how this would look if it was like in the 1500s and pirates were attacking our ships. And that was the only way you were going to feed your colony and get your cinnamon back. We came up with a way collectively using people, process, and technology. And I think we can do it again. 
All right, Melanie, take us out. What do you think? All right. So I'm, I'm personally very encouraged and optimistic about the future because I grew up in this space looking to people like Michelle to find mentors, to find those champions and warriors who had gone before. And I know that for Michelle, she didn't have that. And so she carved a lot of this space herself, mm. you know, with her contemporaries. I mean, and it's, you know, she, she had peers and contemporaries, but you know, the folks who came b- before me and my peers, like really so hard. Like I have so much respect for them that they continued to fight. And as a result of their fight, there's a whole like army of us coming up the ranks, Mm. starting companies, leading teams, building things with the confidence and mentorship of those who came before us. And that means that as a consumer, when you speak out, when you give feedback to your company, there's most likely somebody in that company who actually cares Hmm. and is going to use that as ammo in this fight to get you even more rights and more protection. When you vote in elections or when you participate in a town hall, the likelihood that there's somebody listening who cares about this has significantly increased because Mm. of people like Michelle who have fought their whole career to get into positions of influence and to develop more folks like me who are, you know, we're growing exponentially as a community. And so for those that feel voiceless and for those that have felt hopeless, there are people listening now. So please don't stop speaking up. Mm -hmm. Um, There are more of us in positions that can actually push for change. But truthfully, it it does take a lot of that external pressure and external evidence for us to convince the unconvinced Hmm. um, that Mm -hmm. this is worth investing in. You're going to make me cry, Mel. (laughs) All right, Michelle. Melanie, that was an amazing interview. You've given me quite the editing challenge. (laughs) (laughs) It's maybe a part one and part two one. It may have to be. It just sounds, you have so much good content for your Patreons now. So yeah, there's there was a lot of other content in this interview that I had to cut out for time. I tried to keep in the core stuff uh, for all of you guys, but uh, there was definitely more. It is available to patrons on Patreon, so you know this might be a great time if you want to get the full interview. And we got into some other interesting topics, and they made some very other interesting points. You can head over to Patreon.com and become a patron. And now would be a great time to do that because the challenge coins are back. If you sign up as a patron at the right level, you will get one or two challenge coins in your finish of choice. These things are really cool. If you missed it last time, now's your chance. There's only so many of these left on the planet to even get. And I don't know if I'm ever going to make more of these. So they're quite the collector's item. If you want some more info, go to my blog. And uh, it's one of the, it's probably the top entry right now. If not, it's the second to the top entry. Just search on Challenge Coin and you'll find it with all the details of the promotion. It will end on November 2nd. So you've only got a couple weeks left. So definitely check that one out. As always, if you go to the show notes, I've got links to a lot of things we talked about today, including both Melanie's company and Michelle's consulting firm. I've got a link to Michelle's book and some of the other things we mentioned today, including the Privacy is Power book, The Social Dilemma, and other things as well. So check that, check out the show notes for links to related material. So big thanks again to Melanie and Michelle for coming on the show. That was a lot of fun, very informative, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Got a big news show for you next week, so stay tuned, subscribe if you haven't, And until next week, everybody, stay.
stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>